WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener here at 88.7 WAGP, the Bible line is a one-hour program where we take people's questions about God's word, maybe a problem passage you're trying to understand or apply in your life or ministry. All you have to do is call us. Rick, give the phone numbers again. Indeed, they are 525. Well, now, actually, we have to use all 10 digits when you call. So it's 843-525-1859, toll-free 877-924-7980, or you can always email us at tbl at net, And uh, we do have uh, somebody that did indeed email their question. They were listening to last week's Bible line, or actually two weeks ago, and a question came in regarding co-ed life groups led by a husband and wife team. The question dealt with the wife having a co-leadership role with her husband. Now, this woman writes that she is in a co-ed life group led by a man, and with regards to 1 Timothy 2.11, let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, and also 1 Corinthians 14.34 and 35, let the women keep silent in churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but let them subject themselves, just as the law also says, and if they desire to learn anything, to let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, regarding these uh, particular passages, do these apply to a woman like this writer who not being allowed to ask questions even if they're not meeting at a church building but having church fellowship and Bible study in someone's home? Uh, She feels it's pretty black and white but would still like to hear what you have to say. Well, it's a good question, and it's one that we need to think through in our day because egalitarian theology that basically says men and women are equal but they can play the same roles is really uh, a new step in the evangelicalism in deference to more of the historical position that Christians have taken, the church fathers, the Protestant reformers, and really, for the most part, most evangelicals right through the 1970s, 80s, and early 90s, that's beginning to change. Uh, Complementarianism, which is really the biblical expression, men and women are equal, but while they are equal, they play different roles, whether it's in the family or the church or whatever expression that might be in the three great uh, institutions that God ordained. Uh, Paul is very, very clear. He says in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 11, let a woman receive quietly instruction with entire submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And uh, to affirm that truth, he goes back to the order of creation, 
that it was not Adam who was first created, uh, not Eve who was first created, but Adam and then Eve. And then he takes it back to the fall that when uh, Eve stepped out of her God-given role, she really opened herself up to deception. And that's true whenever we step out of fellowship with God and disobey what we know to be true, uh, then we open ourselves up potentially for real error. So in in either case, uh, God is clear uh, that there is a role in the church and that church extends, uh, the church, uh, the principle extends beyond just when the church is assembled in a building we call a church. Obviously, uh, there were no church buildings for the first couple of hundred years of church history. People met in open fields, sometimes in synagogues, uh, the Jewish church did. Uh, they met uh, outside the temple, the portico. Uh, it's really um, not until around 197 AD, there's a mosaic that has been found of what is believed to be maybe one of the earliest church buildings, uh, that floor. Uh, but by the end of the fourth century, 375, 380, meeting in buildings that we call, quote unquote, a church building uh, or a house of prayer, depending on the country or the region of the world that you are in, uh, that whole mindset didn't start until many, many hundreds of years into the history of the church. So there's not like a one application when the church meets in a formal worship service and another application when the church is meeting in someone's home or for that matter, even a Sunday school class, whether it's on the campus of a church or whether the Sunday school class meets off campus. No, there is one standard and contextually. You have to argue that because he has already uh, just said prior to this verse, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Then the next verse is let a woman quietly receive instruction. So to say that this applies only in the worship service would be to say that a woman's adornment in modesty. And I have a whole sermon on that, what it means, what it doesn't mean because uh, there are some brethren who have really abused this passage and say, well, women can't wear makeup or th that's not his point. It's one of the great not buts in scripture, not this, but this. Uh, it's an issue of emphasis. Jesus said, no longer do I call you slaves, but I call you friends. There's one of the not buts in scripture, not this, but this. You're still slaves, but you're more than slaves your friends. And so in the church or outside of the church, it's not like, well, when the church is gathered for a worship service, the women need to be modest and not immodestly dressed. But, you know, if they want to dress, you know, immodestly uh, during the week, that's no, no, no. It's the same application in either setting. The first uh, Corinthians passage is a little more challenging, but again, the best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. And there's always an explanation when you look at a text within uh, the context of the book that it's written or the broader context of the whole New Testament. There he says, let the women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but let them subject themselves just as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home for it is improper for a woman to speak at church. Now, again, the best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. 
And Paul is not contradicting what he has just said in the 11th chapter. Let's give him some credit where he says in 11.5, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head for she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. And so he talks about when and how a woman can speak in the church. So the silence that he is giving here in the context is a qualified silence. Um, it doesn't mean that she can't sing in the church. Doesn't mean that she couldn't even prophesy in the church. And God used women to prophesy in the early church where they became a direct conduit of revelation. Uh, before the Bible was written, they couldn't say, well, let's go to Ephesians 4 and see what Paul says about anger. Or let's go to Ephesians 5 and see what he says about marriage. Or, or let's go to 1 Peter 3 and see what Peter says about submission. Now, the, the scriptures were being written. And so God would often, through individuals in the church, uh, give direct revelation. Uh, that prophetic side of the gift dried up after the canon of Scripture was completed, and you might expect that. So what was happening is, in a congregation, he has just said, by the way, in verse 29, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. And so those who were passing judgment on the prophecy moved past just a speaking role, like a woman reading scripture in the church, which would be permissible today, to an evaluation, really teaching role. So we had to be aware in the early church of false prophets who would come in. John will say, test the spirits to see if they be of from God. Someone could stand up and prophesy and it could be a false prophecy. I, I got a letter this morning. I meant to bring it up, Rick, because they wanted us to answer it. But it was in reference to um, false prophets. And supposedly there's a prophet in our country who calls himself a Christian and I don't know, there's an asteroid or a comet that's supposed to hit uh, tomorrow, September the 23rd. It's going to bring massive waves into Florida and huge waves all the way up the East Coast. And, you know, how do we uh, how do we work through these people who, you know, David Wilkerson and three or four other people were mentioned who claim to be modern day prophets. And they often appeal to the Joel, Joel text. Well, again, People can make statements, but they're not necessarily true. And sometimes even Christian people, David Wilkerson definitely has the gospel. And he uh, led a lot of people uh, to faith in Christ in his lifetime. But he also had some, you know, Pentecostal type thinking that was just not always accurate and biblical. And so just because someone makes a statement doesn't make it true. And does this mean they're a false prophet if tomorrow the, uh, the tidal wave doesn't come? Well, there, there have been some, some of God's men who have made some stupid statements, even in my lifetime. Pat Robertson, you know, years ago made some prophecies. I won't expound on those this morning, but they were just stupid and they never came true. Does that mean you stone them as a false prophet? Well, there's a difference, I would say, between false teaching and a false prophet and sometimes you can have a person who's just kind of an egomaniac and they get a spiritual sense of goodness about themselves by the experiences they have. Yeah, God speaks through me. Oh, wonderful. What does he say? You know, um, if God's speaking directly to you, that must put you on a level above all the other Christians in the world. And so it becomes uh, really kind of an ego thing unfortunately, when these kinds of things happen. And sometimes Christian people do them more often than not unsaved people do them. 
But in the early church, two or three prophets were to speak and then others were to evaluate them. So when you went into the evaluation mode, you're going into a teaching mode. You're going to say, well, Moses said this in the Torah, and this doesn't sync with what God revealed through Moses, and so we cannot accept this. So you're moving past a simply speaking mode into a teaching mode, and that's where the woman was to be silent. It was a qualified silent because God gave in the church when the church is gathered, male and female alike. I don't care if it's in a Bible study in your home or if it's uh, in an ABF, the teaching role is to be done by men. And of course, the Greeks were well known by the way they formulated questions. You could create a teaching uh, mode by just the way you asked the question. And you could basically be challenging the authority of the teaching of the person who's over you. So because it went to a teaching mode, the, the, the silence is qualified in verse 29. The context is dealing with prophets. And so a woman was not to go into the teaching mode in the assembly, whether it's in someone's home or wherever it might be, because then she would be in violation of first Timothy two eleven and the role in the place that God has, has called her to, to take. That doesn't mean again, a woman can't speak in the church or participate in a Bible study in a mixed group, but there's a big difference between that and opening the scriptures in a mixed audience. And I know uh, this may seem old fashioned, but let me just say, if it's new, it's not true. And so, you know, the Beth Moores of this day who teach in mixed audiences and they say, well, I'm under the authority of my pastor and he's allowed me. No pastor has authority to give you authority that God expressly says you can't do. And so they're just wrong on that. And they're doing real damage to the body of Christ because in taking the role of a man, they are depreciating the role that God has given to the women. And it's a very, very important role. And when we diminish that role, the church in the long run is hurt. It's not helped. Anyway, it's a great question. This uh, caller has emailed us. And if you have a question, it's 843-525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at net. Let's go to the next question. Okay, last week uh, we were talking about the five-point Calvinist. And a caller tried to get the scripture used for TULIP. She got Romans 3 for total depravity, but missed the scriptures used for the unconditional election, for limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Are there main scriptures used for these points? She is trying to um, figure out how to address friends who are Calvinists, and also is this a salvation issue? We'll get to that question in just a second, but we always give preference to live callers, and one just has now come on the line, so let's go to them. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. Uh, Pastor, I know you've talked to us, and actually Rick has mentioned in our ABF several times that the closer we get to God and the more we get into his word, the more the devil will just try to attack us. And I like, I like to think that I'm, I'm past milk and out of baby food and getting into, into the meat of the word. I just wonder if you can give some words of encouragement to, to those who, who may be suffering attacks as they're trying to get into the young Christian life. Well, you know, of course, we, we blame a lot on the devil that has very little to do with the devil. Um, many times we're not under some demonic attack. Uh, and, I, and I know that 
again, you know, people want to blame a lot on the devil. Flip Wilson, a famous comedian in the 60s and 70s, or early 60s, early 70s. I think he died in the 70s, but he used to say the devil made me do it. Well, I doubt it. Um, many times it's just being carried away by our own fallen sinful nature that we've done what we've done. That's not to say that they're not safeguards that God has given us, but James speaks here as a general principle Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. Well, you might expect under a lot of the current emphasis, well, then the devil made us do it. No, he says each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. There are three forces that wage war against the believer, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is the world system, the the philosophical outlook on life. So sometimes the term world is not used in that way. Sometimes it's used of the physical planet, sometimes of the people who live on the planet, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, or sometimes the philosophical outlook that the world system espouses. Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but you know, it's from the world. Well, who's operating the world system? Satan is. Uh, we are told that he is the God of this world. And as we are in this new series that has just begun on the prophet Daniel, uh, we will deal with this subject of spiritual battle, especially when we come to Daniel chapter 10, because we wage war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And many times those principalities and powers are working not in a single individual um, alone, but they're working through the world system. So some demon, maybe even Satan himself, I suppose, on rare occasions, but he has a whole um, order of people who report to him. Uh, If you've taken my course on angelology, you learn that there is an order, a pecking order amongst both the holy angels and the fallen angels. In either case, some fallen angels say could put in the heart and mind of some movie producer to create some series or some television show that is anti-God or that has a, a message that is very subtle that is against the word of God. And of course, um, many times they are doing that because they want you to embrace something that is antithetical to scripture. Someone asked me recently about a program called um, Zoo, and they said it was uh, this television program that uh, the, the animals in the world basically turn on humans. And they wanted to know what I thought about that. And I said, well, is there any underlying message? And they said, well, they... They, they seem to indicate, he said, maybe I'm reading into it too much that, you know, we need to treat animals differently. Well, you know, certainly we're not to be cruel to animals, uh, but, you know, I can see some organization like PETA creating a film uh, series like that or television show, I think this was, you know, to get you to think in an unbiblical way concerning the animals. God tells us we can shoot and kill the animals. Uh, some of you maybe need to exercise your your biblical authority and, oh, the poor little deer. Well, the poor little cow, the next time you have a hamburger. 
um, there's nothing wrong with eating meat and someone has to kill it. And God says, that's okay. Uh, God also tells me in the book of Proverbs in the 12th chapter, uh, in the 10th verse, if I remember, let me just turn there real quickly. Yeah. A righteous man has regard for the life of his beast, but the compassion of the wicked is cruel. So we're to be compassionate towards animals. Uh, God, when he encountered, you know, his prophet Jonah, he said, well, Jonah, you could have at least cared about the animals that were in the town, but he didn't seem to even have a care for that. So what I'm trying to say here is that many times a demon or a group of demons who are at work in the invisible realm are crafting and shaping a philosophy that they want you to embrace in order to entice your fallen sinful nature. And so while it may not be a direct attack from a demon or the devil on you, it might've been on someone else to in a wholesale way to potentially influence tens of thousands, even millions of people uh, through the world system. And we're told the God of this world, small G is Satan. He is the one Paul says in Ephesians two is energizing Ernergo, he's working, we get our word energy from it, and the sons of disobedience. And so that's why we're told not to love the world. So there's the world, there's the flesh. The flesh is your fallen sinful nature within. And of course, there's the devil himself. So we have three arch enemies that we need to be aware of. Certainly, if you're sitting on the sidelines, you're a little threat to the evil one. But when you get out on the front lines, and you start living for God and you start breaking into the devil's kingdom. There's two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness. There's no middle ground. People are either saved or lost. And when you go into Satan's kingdom and you're trying to win people out of that kingdom by your distinctly different lifestyle, because you live and speak up for Christ and through your sharing of the gospel, then you become a real threat. And so, yes, uh, Satan could certainly entice you, but greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. This is uh, the, uh, what has overcome the world, our faith, the Bible says. That's our victory. So we walk by faith in the written word of God. And uh, as we do that, God will encourage us. Let, let's keep going. Uh, we could spend a whole lot more time on that, but I think we've got another caller. We do indeed. Thank you for holding. You are on the Bible line. Good morning. Hey, um, I have a question. I I hope that y'all can help me um, be able to uh, take some better steps towards spiritual growth. I'm not a baby Christian by any means. I'm definitely well into the meat of the Word, but I... Uh, are you there? Yes, I'm here, listening carefully. Okay, okay I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um... I just uh I have an issue. I don't have I don't have issues with lust or anything like that. Nothing uh out the out the out the way. Nothing that that I don't have a grip on. I, I there's many things that I've I've grown and and uh have have much better outlook on and uh it's just an area that I have a problem with and uh, I've prayed about it and prayed about it and I actually have me a war room now cuz I saw the movie and I thought it was a great idea and uh, I have it on the on, on my prayer list, and but um, I, I deal with and always have had an issue controlling my temper uh, when it gets to a certain point. And um, you know, I don't do it as much by any means, and 
I've grown, I've grown, you know, in that area too, along with many other areas. But when, when it happens, it can, it can, it can get ugly, and it's, it's, uh, it's an embarrassment to me as a Christian. I, I don't appreciate myself. I feel, I know God, I know God forgives, forgives me, but it doesn't matter. I, I still don't want to do that. I wanted to represent Him better than that, and. I just really want to uh, know how to pray in this area and um, just just how to get victory right. in this let, area. Let me see if I can respond. Uh, Paul says this in Galatians 5. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Uh, the flesh here is not a reference to the skin on your skeleton, but to the fallen, sinful, Adamic nature that we inherit because we sinned in and with Adam. For the flesh, the sin nature sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Why? Because they're in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. There's a tension on the inside that the believer experiences that the unbeliever does not know. The unbeliever has a conscience, but with time that conscience can become seared and calloused and even a good conscience can become what the Bible calls an evil conscience. An evil conscience is basically when you call good evil in evil good. But the believer, when he is regenerated by the spirit of God, when he's born again, when he has his second birth, uh, the Holy Spirit comes to live within him. And um, he works on unbelievers. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, but he only indwells those who are born again. That's the promise of the new covenant that prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel spoke of, that because our sin would be forgiven, that God would come and live on the inside and that we could all know him, not just a select few, but from the greatest to the least. Why? Because our iniquity would be forgiven. He'd put his spirit within us. He'd take our heart of stone, turn it into a heart of flesh. And so there's a new sensitivity that comes. And that's why he says, so that you may not do the things that you please. There's a tension there that we experience. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. So he gives some of the, uh, the traits that the fallen sinful nature produces. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, uh, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. There's the one you're mentioning. Disputes dissensions, factions, envy and drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, just in case I missed something, of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who live like this shall not inherit the kingdom of God. If this is all we see in a person's life, and there's no fruit, no evidence of a new birth, then you have a sure and certain proof that they've never really met the living God. But can a Christian commit any of these? Of course, that's why he admonishes us to walk by the Spirit and not to carry out the desire of the flesh. None of us are above any of these things. Now, it is true that there are some things that are more tempting to some people than others, maybe because of their background. Uh, I'm not tempted by homosexuality. Uh, I suppose I could be. Why? Because uh, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. There's no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. But that's not an issue in my life. However, there might be some other issue uh, as a heterosexual that I could be tempted with. And so we watch over our hearts with all diligence. Why? Because from them flow the very issues of life. And there may be areas in which you seemingly have victory and other areas where you're not as strong. And so what's the solution? Same solution, whatever the sin is. Walk by the Spirit 
that you might not carry out the desires of the flesh. And so then it becomes more an issue. Well, what does it mean to walk by the spirit? And I have a message online. To me, it's one of our core messages. There are two core messages at searchthescriptures.org, as well as at the church website, communitybiblechurch.us. One is entitled, Would You Like to Have God as Your Friend? The other is entitled, Would You, uh, Have You Ever Made the Wonderful Discovery of the Spirit-Filled Life? Uh, unfortunately, there was a time in evangelicalism when pastors and preachers and teachers didn't even want to talk about the Holy Spirit because they didn't want to be grouped with some of the Pentecostal extremes and really error that had uh, come into the church and created division and especially beyond the Pentecostal movement, the charismatic movement of the 60s and 70s. Uh, There is a difference between a charismatic and a Pentecostal. A Pentecostal comes out of the early 1900s at the turn of the century from the Azusa Street Revival, and from that came some major denominations. The charismatic movement was really birthed in the 60s. Uh, Rita Bennett and her husband, uh, Rita and Dennis Bennett, and uh, it was um, basically a movement that went into mainline denominations where people were encouraged to speak in tongues and it split churches and it was really a harrowing time that that was the era in which I met Christ in the 1970s and I I witnessed that firsthand churches splitting over these kinds of things and all the division that came through and so a lot of pastors just totally backed away and Oh, you know, we don't want to talk about the Holy Spirit because of all these excesses and abuses and false doctrines that are associated with it. But we're commanded to teach the whole counsel of Scripture. And part of that is how to walk in the Spirit. So one, I would encourage you to uh, listen to that message. There are four critical commands that God gives that can prevent us from being filled with the Spirit or keep us from his filling in every dimension of life. Uh, the command, grieve not the spirit, quench not the spirit, walk by the spirit, the one we just read, and so to the spirit. So if you're grieving the spirit or quenching the spirit, you grieve the spirit when you do those things you shouldn't do. Those are what we call sins of commission. Uh, the solution is genuine confession. True confession, of course, has an element of repentance in it. If we confess our sins, a, a verse written to believers not to be saved, but people who are saved to maintain not union for that's eternal, but communion or closeness with God. So first John one nine is the Christian's bar of soap has nothing to do with salvation. But if the Christian has unconfessed unrepented sin in his heart, then the Holy spirit who indwells him certainly will not fill him and they will be able to manifest any of these works of the flesh. We're not to quench the spirit. You quench the spirit when you don't do those things you ought to do. And so it's usually the sins of omission that keep us from being filled with the spirit. God calls you on the Lord's day to gather with his people and to sing. You say, well, I don't like to sing. Then you're disobeying God. You're doing what he says not to do. Um, And that's a, that's a positive command of scripture. Well, I don't like to share my faith because that's not my spiritual gift. It may not be, but it's your spiritual responsibility. And a lot of Christians, especially in our day, are quenching the spirit by their sheer disobedience and unwillingness to speak up for Christ. And they wonder why their life is so inconsistent, because while the spirit indwells them, he's not filling them. Walking by the spirit is this idea of dependence, 
Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who lives in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Without me, you can do zero, nothing. Uh, that is uh, just exactly what it means, nothing. Nothing in terms of fruitfulness. Now, you can do a lot of religious things, even biblical things, but not in a spirit-filled way if you are relying on your own power to pull it off. Paul says to the church at Coloss, as you've received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive him? By faith. You came in a spirit of bankruptcy and you admitted that there was nothing you could do to merit salvation and you put your whole weight, your trust, your belief, your confidence on what the Bible calls the gospel. And the gospel is defined as the death, burial, and resurrection. You admitted there was nothing you could do to merit heaven and you trusted alone what Jesus did on your behalf and God saved you. Um, as you've received him, now walk in him. Uh, that's the progressive uh, dependence upon the Lord where you admit, I can't live the Christian life in my own power. I need the Holy Spirit to live his life in and through me. And then the Bible says, so do the Spirit. And this is where a lot of Christians fail. They keep confessing the same sin over and over and over again, but they don't really hide the word of God in their heart. In Psalm 119 in our English Bible, it's Psalm 118 in the Hebrew Bible, and in many other languages of the world where they uh, divide the Bible a little differently in the book of Psalms, but it asks the question, uh, how can, and I say that because we have people who are live streaming today or, or listening to us in other countries. How can a young man keep his way pure? It's a good question. He said, by keeping it according to your word. Then he says, with all my heart, I've sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. There's that attitude. I want to obey completely. And then he makes the statement, your word, I've hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. So the hidden word in the human heart is the tool that the spirit of God uses to give us victory. And if you're struggling with anger, then what you probably need to do is to begin to hide scripture that relates to the anger problem. Whether you think uh, you have a right that's violated. Well, you know, uh, there's a lot of rights we claim in our day that aren't rights at all. In fact, uh, God calls us to suffer unjustly, to follow the example of Christ. Uh, some truths like that might be worth hiding in your heart, or you deal with anger improperly. Uh, the Bible says, be angry, but sin not. In other words, not all anger is sin. Uh, some anger is. There is a righteous anger that you can express, but when it becomes an outburst of anger, an explosion, that it really has not been handled properly. And so if you've not hidden God's word in your heart, when the temptation comes, however that may come for you, then the spirit of God will have nothing to bring to your mind and you'll just live out in the flesh. However, if when the temptation comes and because you've hidden the word of God in your heart and you are filled with the spirit as much as you know how to be and that you're not grieving him or quenching him and you're walking by him and because you've sown to the spirit, then the spirit of God will bring to the forefront of your mind these truths about what you've hid. And then the real temptation is to block the truth of the Bible that he's brought to the forefront of your mind and to go after the temptation. And it becomes much more of a willful, conscious disobedience against God. Um, we have a class at Community Bible Church called the Discovery Class. It's a 45-week course. It's uh, structured so that you don't have to wait for it to start over. Uh, if someone comes to Christ this week, and I hope many will, then I will invite them to attend the discovery class this Sunday. 
either hour they can go to worship and the other hour alternative hour they can go to the discovery class they could start at week 40 go weeks 40 to 45 1 to 39 but I say this because this is basic Christianity and I don't know this person who's called and maybe they are as they have described themselves a mature Christian uh, and that this is just an area of immaturity in their heart. But many times Christians don't know the basics. What I've just shared there on the spirit filled life, that's basic Christianity. That's something a new Christian should learn in their first year of life. And unfortunately, many times that doesn't happen. I think Billy Graham's assessment some years back was entirely correct that 90 to 95% of those who have genuinely been saved have remained baby Christians. Uh, We had an individual go through the discovery class, an older gentleman, and he said to me, Pastor, I became a Christian 30 some years ago at a church, 32 years ago in a church not far from here. But he said, I realize I stayed a baby Christian for 32 years. I grew more in six months in the discovery class than I had in the prior 32 years. And I hear those kinds of statements said over and over and over again. Why? Because very often people come to Christ, but the foundational truths that they need to really grow and mature and deepen just are not given today because we've gotten away from the basics. We've gone into a new methodology and church paradigm on how church is to be done. And it's not one that's just not true and it's inaccurate. And so it produces crowds. It produces people who like to go to church because it makes them feel good, but it doesn't produce spiritual maturity. So anyway, let's go to the next question. I appreciate that. You know, if I might add one one thing, Mm -hmm. oftentimes you've uh, stated about first Corinthians, I'm sorry, Romans 12, one, uh, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You've said the problem with a living sacrifice is it always wants to crawl off of the altar. And, mm. you know, with people who are having problems like anger, and I, I will be the first to admit I used to have this problem, but it's a daily, you know, you have to die daily That's right. to whatever it is that is trying to get control of you, and you have to get back up on that on that altar. So I sympathize with our listener there. In, in the next verse, too, it says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Metamorpho, we get our word uh, metamorphosis from it. How? Through the renewing of your mind. So critical to seeing that victory where you stay on the altar is to have your mind renewed. And if I sat down with this person, if I were their pastor and said, well, give me the last 10 scenarios. I might have them write it down. I said, well, you got angry. I would probably see a pattern in their anger. Like this is the thing that causes them to blow up. And then we would go to the scripture and and we would see it's not necessarily a passage that say is just on anger, but it might be a passage that that deals with a perspective in life that we're supposed to have, but we don't have because we're thinking unbiblically and our mind needs to be renewed in this area. And then we would go to that truth and say, well, this is what God says about this area. Oh, I hadn't really thought about it. I said, well, that's what's making you angry because you think this way when this kind of scenario comes and you need to think this way. And the only way for you to think this way is to renew your mind in scripture and to think your thoughts after God's thoughts and then to hide that thought in your heart, treasure it there. And then you're going to begin to see life changes. This doesn't mean you'll never get angry again, but it's through a series of proper choices. You may lose a battle occasionally, but you can win the war. And as you continue to make right choices over and over and over again, then God begins to put proven character in your heart. So 
All right. Let's go to our next live caller who is standing by very patiently. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi. I have a question. I haven't. I tuned in late, so I'm not sure if this may be one that was asked already. But with everything that's going on now with the elections, um, I'm trying to educate myself, and I'm trying to help to educate others. And I think there are people that don't understand that there are definitely fundamental differences between um, evangelical Christianity and the Seventh-day Adventist. Can you kind of enlighten us on that? Well, it's a good question. Um, Someone called me last week and um, I returned their phone call and they said, you know, supporting Carson, Dr. Carson, what do you think? And I said, well, I said, I'm convinced he's a born again Christian. I said, there's no doubt in my mind there. He definitely has the gospel. And And I knew that ever before this because I kind of followed his life years ago it's kind of captivated by this, you know, surgeon, brain surgeon, and of course his uh, famous address a couple of years back, where with a great sense of conviction and boldness at the National Prayer Breakfast, you know, confronted with the president sitting two seats next to him uh, without any apology. So I appreciate that aspect of him. But I said to them, I said, one of the questions I would have because I haven't decided who I, I, I want to fully support, uh, you know, and of course it would be interesting to see how things go down, but I know some people who I want to support. I certainly don't want to support Hillary Clinton, who's in favor of murdering little babies, and it has nothing to do with Democrat versus Republican. I certainly don't want to uh, support the socialists, who's as liberal as could be, even more liberal than Hillary. So um, right now, the only offerings that reflect the Judeo-Christian mindset are on my, in my opinion right now, for the office of president, are on the Republican side. So it becomes which one? Well, Dr. Carson definitely is a born-again Christian, but I said one of the questions I said, I just haven't heard any of the press ask him this, is Seventh-day Adventists are pacifists. And so they don't believe that they should fight in a war. And they are willing to support their government as a pacifist where they would take a desk job, but they don't believe you should take a gun and point it at someone and kill them. That's pure pacifism. That's what they've taught. They've not changed that. Now, how influenced he is by that, I don't know. Um, He made a big point at the last debate that um, he was not in favor of the Iraq war in uh, counseled President Bush accordingly. Now, what was the right rationale? Was that because he was a pacifist? I, I don't know. But that would definitely be a question I would have because remember, the major role of government is not to provide good education and to pave our roads and um, you know build nice parks. And the n- number one role of government is to put down evil and to praise that which is good. It's a defensive posture. Because God knows, because of the fallen nature of man, that we need to have the sword that God gives to the government. And if a person is a pacifist and he's the commander in chief, how is that going to influence some of his decisions? So that's an unknown for me. I'm not saying I wouldn't vote for Ben Carson. In fact, if it was him versus Hillary Clinton, there's no doubt in my mind who I would vote for. But I'm trying to narrow the field. And, of course, yesterday he's, you know, impugned for saying that um, he wouldn't support a, a Muslim for the president of the United States. Um, and some people have kind of attacked him on that. And he was speaking about his personal position, the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution, 
is dealing with the role of the federal government. He's not the federal government. He's an, he's an individual, and he was saying, I, I wouldn't support them uh, because I do think that a person's religious values should reflect um, the principles that are found in our Constitution. So he wasn't saying anything against the Sixth Amendment or against the Constitution. So I support the answer he gave. And, and really, a lot depends on the on the Muslims. Just like, you know, people don't want to come out and say it, the president is not a Christian. That's just not politically correct. You know, if they were asking me that, I would say, well, it, yes, in a broad sense, in the broad definition of the word, he's a Christian. But in a specific definition of the word, when you want to get really precise and we want to put some adjectives in front of it and we say born again Christian, well, that's a different issue altogether. How can someone be a born again Christian, have a new regenerated mind to think the thoughts of God um, and to be in favor of homosexual marriage? I don't care what they call themselves. They're not born again. If you meet Jesus Christ as your savior, you're going to see certain things as evil. You're going to see that homosexuality is a wicked sin. God calls it an abomination. You're going to see that Planned Parenthood is doing a wicked, vile, evil thing in our nation. And there will be no and ifs or buts about it. So again, terms need to be defined. So when we use the term Muslim, are we talking about a westernized Muslim or are we talking about a real Muslim? Well, a real Muslim is really against the Constitution of the United States. And, you know, if I were asking the question that Chuck Todd asked uh, to this candidate, I I would have said, well, um, I would ask these Muslims who are coming against, you know, the good doctor, uh, are you in favor of a caliphate? Are you in favor of Sharia, Sharia law? And if you are, then you're against the Constitution of the United States. And real Muslims are against it. And this is, of course, a real concern going on in Europe because there's a crisis going on in the world. And you've got tens of thousands of Syrians who are fleeing for their life. And and I want to win these people to Christ. God loves the Muslims. Christ died for them. And we're to have compassion for them. But there is a lot of them are going to go into Europe. And, of course, a lot of the Germans are shook. And they say, well, you're going to start building you know, moss here in our towns? And are you going to try to implement Sharia law like they're trying to do in places like London and other European countries? And of course, uh, they're the ones having the babies. Christians are not having babies. They're the ones who are having six, seven, eight, nine. And if you look at the numbers, just look not only at the numbers of these refugees who are fleeing, look at the ages. When you look at the demographics of the Muslim world, you're going to discover that about 78%, at least the people I read, and I think they're pretty accurate, of Muslims who are alive in the world are between 18 and 30. So you've got this huge burgeoning population of Muslims who are very, very young. And they're having kids and they're multiplying like nobody's business. You know, we're going to have 50 million of them in America by 2030. That's in 15 years. 50 million Muslims in America. And that doesn't um, take into account how many Muslim refugees we're going to take through the current process and and how they're going to multiply. 
So these are, these are important issues. And so Ben Carson is an Adventist, and Adventists have some weird doctrines, I admit. But some Adventists have the gospel, some do not. He has the plan of salvation. Historical Adventism has changed quite a bit. But there are still some really weird doctrines. But I, do ha- I would have a question if he comes to South Carolina. And usually when these things get going, most of the presidential candidates, you know, I met with Rick Perry a few months ago and he wanted my support. And Rick Santorum came through when he was running the first time. And I walked him through the plan of salvation in my office because he couldn't answer the diagnostic questions. And, and if he comes through, I will want to know where he stands on some of these issues like pacifism and how much of his Adventist doctrine. It's kind of shocking to me that no one has asked that question. No one has asked that question, probably because they don't really understand Seventh-day Adventist doctrine. But when we're talking about the commander in chief of the armies of the United States government, to me, that's a pretty critical question. Anyway, let's go to the next one. All right. Uh, we never did answer the question of the person who wanted to know some scriptures that support the five points so, of the Calvinism. Uh, you know, th- that's not an easy answer to give to you here on the Bible line in a, in a matter of minutes, but I'll direct you to a message that I spoke. If you go to searchthescriptures.org, uh, we offer what's called the Institute of Biblical Studies. And the Institute of Biblical Studies is a 34-hour course of studies, 34 hours like in a seminary setting. And we've done a number of the courses. There's still just a few that I lack. I still need to teach pneumatology and I still need to do Old Testament survey. But you could go online and you could take the course on soteriology. Soto means in Greek to save. So soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. And I deal in the course on soteriology with TULIP, a total depravity, unconditional election, Limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Some of those are good terms. The question is, what, how do you define those terms? And what do you mean by those terms? Uh, so it, it becomes really critical. So I go through, like, for instance, L, limited atonement, all the texts of Scripture that the limited redemptionist uses to argue that Jesus did not die for all, but only for the elect. You know, passages like, I lay down my life for my sheep. Well, does that mean he didn't lay down his life for everybody? No, there are differences in some texts that deal with the intent of the atonement versus the extent of the atonement. And there's an important distinction there. Certainly, when the Lord Jesus went to the cross and the joy set before him, you know, the omniscient God knew who would respond and who would not. And God certainly had to have had in his heart those especially who would respond, those who would believe in his atonement as a means for forgiveness and new life. Uh, not for those who would spit at him and curse him and use his name in vain and ignore him their whole lives, but for those who would respond and those who would become born again believers. So there are passages that deal with extent, some that deal with intent. And for each of these things, I would just direct you to that course. Um, you can go online, search the click on the course on soteriology. You'll see all the lessons taught and uh, the, the, the lesson that deals with the doctrine of election. And I walk through each of those things carefully. If the listener wants something a little bit shorter, didn't you cover that in uh, Romans 9, part of Romans 9? I did. So um, I, I dealt with um, not everything like I dealt with limited atonement in Romans 5 because it was just a natural place to do it because there Paul makes a 
uh, analogy between the one act of Adam and the one act of Christ. Just as Adam's one act had an effect on the entire human race, even so his argument is, is that the death of Christ had an effect on the entire human race. Just as through one act of sin, death spread to the whole world, even through the death of Christ, he made a provision, and that provision he qualifies becomes good for you when you receive it by faith. But uh, I dealt with limited atonement there, but not extensively. I didn't go through all the passages that people use for a limited redemption. If I'm preaching through a book of the Bible and it naturally fits, like if I were preaching through Second Peter 2, where he says false prophets also arose among the people, speaking of the Old Testament, just as there will be false prophets among you, speaking of our age, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. What does that mean? It means that Jesus died even for the false prophet. And by choices they make in their heart as a result of their free will, they deny the atonement that was made on their behalf. Jesus died for everybody. I can look at anyone in the eye and say, God loves you. Christ died for you. I don't have to use the qualified terminology of some of my reformed friends that he died for those who would repent and believe. I don't believe that. Now, there are popular guys like John Piper and others who express that. I, I, I think they're wrong. I love them. I'm glad they have the gospel. I'm glad they're winning people to Jesus. But I don't buy lim- their limited redemption that they teach. Uh, so these are, I think, important issues. And in my view, uh, some of the views that my Reformed Brothers has absolutely kills evangelistic initiative in our nation. And I know there are guys like J.I. Packer, who, of course, was a five-point Calvinist, and he wrote Evangelism, the Sovereignty of God, and I read it as a new Christian, and after that, and I just don't buy his argument, and nor do missiologists um, document his argument as being true, because it's not the Reformed Church that's sending missionaries to the world. They're not the ones who are sharing the gospel. They make a minority of a minority of a minority. Uh, It's the non um, and again, I use the word Calvinist. I, I don't want to be unfair to them because Calvinism is much more than just soteriology. It's a whole system of theology that that goes into every realm. Eschatology, pneumatology, uh, ecclesiology, every realm of theology um, it enters into. So I, I don't want to be unfair to them. But again, there are aspects of John Calvin's theology that are great. You're going to meet John Calvin in heaven. But there are other aspects that weren't so great. And, you know, when John Calvin wanted to have a man burned at the stake for theological heresy, why did he do that? Well, because uh, he thought we're in a theocracy, that the church had become the new Israel, that we had usurped national Israel. No, we have not. God, God is not done with the Jewish people. He said some embarrassing things about the Jewish people that I've had to apologize to people in Israel when I've been there and tried to witness to them. And so it, it's, it's sad, but it's true and just part of our church history. And let's, let's learn from it. Anyway, we are out of time. A lot of questions that uh, came in today we didn't get to. But God willing, there's always another Tuesday and another Bible line. And if the Lord tarries, we hope to be here again. God bless you and have a great day. And I hope you'll come this Sunday as we're beginning a brand new series on the prophet Daniel. He is the key to all prophetic revelation that deals with the the return of Christ and God.